Welcome, everybody. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Job, chapter 19. Let's all stand. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. And then verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Father, it seems like a strange passage, but we know also that you have inserted this into the scriptures to instruct us, and the story of Job is indeed very instructive, and we're encouraged by how you worked in his life despite the incredible family pressures. I ask that you might work in our hearts when things aren't going quite like we expect, that we might be open to your work. Transform us. Change us. May your Holy Spirit fill us that we can operate with the power of Christ in our relationships. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you remember the story of Job, you know that Satan approached God about Job only following God because things were easy. And apparently his family was following the gravy train because Job had a lot of material possessions. So Satan said, hey, take all that away and Job's not going to follow you anymore, Lord. And what is particularly poignant is this statement about his wife. My breath is strange to my wife. Things felt so distant between them. Intimacy was so infrequent that she could not recognize his breath. There was turmoil, hardship in the family. But then you skip a few verses down, and we read, For I know my Redeemer lives. I'm going to give you the main point right up front. If we make an idol of happiness, we're going to be prone to try to escape anything that's hard. If we have transcendent purpose for our relationships that bring meaning to the pain and hardship, that's going to promote endurance, perseverance. The idol of happiness, I think, is especially prevalent in families and in the church, and even evangelical families, because I think there have been misconceptions that have traveled through the ranks of the church. We know, of course, that these are all entities, family, church, where God wants eternal realities demonstrated, illustrated. That's part of the, the transcendent purpose. But if Satan can get people disillusioned or, or, or bitter, 
what happens is that we, we quit on those relationships. The dysfunction continues and we miss the lessons that God has for us. Jen and I have been married, it'll be 38 years at the end of this year. This is not faux humility, it's the, it's the truth, it's by the grace of God that we've been married that long. Uh, my wife grew up a committed Catholic, and when she met me, I was a Protestant youth pastor. I met her actually the night she came to Christ. And I thought at 21, I had all the answers. Now, both of us are strong personalities. That may not surprise you about me. In her, she's so nice to everybody. But in our house, she has no problem saying what she thinks. Okay? And I like that about her. I should say, I've learned to like that about her. That would be the most, the most honest statement I could make. Pride, selfishness, insecurity, that seemed to have come naturally for us. Our two family systems could not be more dissimilar. I won't get into the specifics. Add on top of that that I mentioned I am male and she is female. would be enough just right there. How do you explain 37 years and now we're enjoying the best season, the best part of our marriage? I'm not superstitious, so I think it's okay to say that because it's God's grace. Janet and I have had to shed many false conceptions of marriage. And false conceptions can, can torpedo even well-meaning couples. It was Socrates who said, by all means marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> well, I have taught philosophy for 15 years, and I have a wonderful wife. So I guess as smart as Socrates was, he didn't have it right about marriage. The first 10 years of my Christian life would best be described as growing up in a fundamentalist evangelical church culture. Now, I am, I am grateful for much of the theological truths I learned, but I've since had to shed much of the sociological unhealthiness. I can remember hearing from various teachers, and if I named them, you would know them, and it's not my job to come up here and dog specific people, but here, here was the message basically given. Seminars, church, okay? That all a husband had to do was to lead as a faithful husband and your Christian wife would follow. The idea was that a godly woman would follow a Christian husband and basically what, what I got from it, just worship the ground that he walked on. So when my smart, think-for-herself wife began to express any displeasure from my thoughts or my actions, I'm like, hey, girl, you need to read the manual. This is the time to drop grapes in my mouth, fan me, and give me a cool drink. Idols create unrealistic expectations. They serve to ruin our endurance and enjoyment. The Bible consistently gives illustration of how marriage is a picture of God's relationship to us and how idols get in the way of those relationships. And it depicts our, our lack of seeking God in like, like an unfaithful spouse. Here, 
Here's the, the prophet Hosea, who the whole book is written about him. And he has a wife who is a prostitute, and there's obvious dysfunction, obvious problems with him pursuing and loving his wife. And it, the whole thing is a, an illustration of God continuing to pursue Israel, even though Israel has been unfaithful to God. Jesus himself hearkened this marriage scenario when he referred to himself as the bridegroom in Matthew 9.15. The kingdom of heaven is a, a wedding banquet in Matthew 22. The book of Re Revelation talks about the wedding of the lamb in which the bride has made herself ready in Revelation 19.7. Jeremiah compels idolatry to adultery when he says, I give faithless Israel her certificate of divorce, and sent her away because of all her adulteries. And Jesus picked up on this and referred to the adulterous generation of his time in Matthew 8, 38. He's agonizing over the, the unfaithfulness of Israel and violating its relationship with God, like a divine marriage. Marriage and I'd say even relationships in the church, are to mirror this relationship that God has with his people and their faithfulness and their grace. Turn to the person next to you and say, relationships have transcendent meaning. Go ahead. Relationships have transcendent meaning. Idolatry is an enemy to our relationship with God, and it's also an enemy to our relationships with people. And making an idol is when we try to have something do the job that only God can do. Idolatry elevates the importance of some earthly thing, and it demotes God, demotes what God can do, his power. It really doesn't make sense, I mean, when you think about it. We see in the Old Testament these golden calves that they would build. It's like, why would you? I don't get it. Why would you do that? I mean, it's like expecting your cat to make you supper, to iron your clothes, vacuum the floor. Your cat can't do that, even if you are a cat lover. I don't understand you being a cat lover, but if you were, it's not capable of such things. Idols take the place of God, but they can't do the job. And when we create idols in marriage or our other relationships, like in the church, we're spiritually sick, we're relationally codependent. The essence of the gospel is when we say to God, God, I can't do anything to help myself. You're going to have to save me. And the essence of our Christian life is pretty much the same thing. God, I need your help. And the essence of an unhealthy Christian is, I don't need God. I'm going to go along and keep doing what I'm doing, self-dependent, which kind of puffs up our own importance. Marriage is a, is a scary union between two people who are fully capable and often walk in the flesh. Now, I want you to write this down. This is a very important insight about marriage. Trust me, I mean, this is huge. Two basic problems in every marriage. One is the husband, and the other is the wife. We all have within us flesh. It's keenly self-interested, 
self-centered. And marriage throws all those people, those two people together in a household. And a church throws many more into the household of God. So church life offers kind of the same temptations to make idols. And so these relationships will often expose our idols. Now here's the thing about idols. It's part of the deception of idols. We take our idols with us wherever we go. We do. I mean, while a, while a church or, or a family or a marriage may trigger your idol, they're not the cause of the idol. So we don't escape our idols by getting a new partner, going to a different church, getting a different job, because these things spring from our hearts. The problem is always what emanates from our hearts. I cannot rightly blame Janet. I cannot rightly blame the church or my friends if I feel like I don't get enough approval or I don't get enough respect. Now, it's not that all these entities aren't responsible for their own actions. We all are. I get that. But I have to see Christ as my ultimate source of approval and love. Christ and my obedience to him, my worship of him, my relationship with him, that's the most important thing. Not my marriage. My marriage is not the most important thing. My relationship with Christ is. But I think many Christians worship the marriage. And that's why when, when it all blows up, you have a spouse that leaves and they say very cutting things like, your whole world falls apart and I get the pain. I, I'm not discrediting the pain, but you know what? You still have Christ. That's not like a, a secondary prize, a loser's prize. He's our ultimate source. Christ is the one who completes us. Christ is the one who loves us unconditionally. Paul wrote in Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. See, I didn't think that I was insecure or prideful until I got married, until I entered into other close relationships. And God has used those relationships to show me his grace, to teach me important lessons that have been necessary for my own maturation. And when we kick against that, when we, when we want to exit those relationships, you know what we do? We punt on the maturity. Now, I'll be quick to add, I get that there are situations where we need to have boundaries. If there's, if there's abuse or you know, continual, obstinate, unhealthy behavior. I get that, that there have to be boundaries. So I'm, I'm allowing room for that. But us choosing to not walk through the difficulties. I mean, I, I've seen God's grace clear, and I've seen my own fleshly tendencies clear in these relationships and in, in any other. I mean, if, if I feel inferior... It's not because Janet didn't do something for me. We understand that. Not because she should have done this or, or she did something that, you know, that I felt was a slight. So therefore, 
It's her fault that I feel inferior. No, it's not the case. It's my fault because I have to own my own thoughts and own my own heart and deal with the things in my heart that interprets every slight through a filter that I'm insecure or I'm not important. That's just bad self-talk. That's bad theology. And early on, I, I didn't realize this. Early on, I didn't know or understand that I was a chosen child of God. So every, every perceived slight would be, you know, absorbed. I love baseball. One of the guys that Janet dated and asked, actually wanted her to marry him was a college baseball pitcher. I was cut from my high school baseball team. And you don't have to or think too much to know how I felt, at least at that time. And I had to realize that insecurity was on me. And I chose to believe lies that often go with making comparisons. So, you know, at least for me, now it may work out different for you, but for me, the best way for me to deal with that is to repent. I had to repent of believing the lies and not believing God's truth about who I was and live in light of the relationship of what's real between me and God, what's true between me and God. So our identity and our allegiance to Christ counteract the deception that comes with our self-talk or making these idols. I mean, idol worship in marriage or other relationships, it, it kind of sounds like this. It says, you know, marriage will make me happy and fulfilled. Being married will make me happy and fulfilled. Or finding a new church, a new job, a new family, this is going to make me happy. I mean, who is ultimately responsible for our joy? Christ is. I mean, how is it that Job could respond the way he did with his wife being as cold as a fish and him saying, my Redeemer lives. I mean, how could he get to that point? See, our walk with God determines our level of joy, not buying some new thing, having so much money. It's not it. Our walk with him determines that, not our economic level and marital status, house we live in. Listen, marriage, family, church, they were not designed to make you happy. Those are entities to make us holy. Imagine the difference of entering into relationships to become more like Christ, to allow God to work out our salvation with fear and trembling to reveal our weaknesses and, and, and selfishness and embrace the difficulties as God's sanctifying process. Here's a statement I bet you didn't read on your Valentine card this week from Helen Rowland. It says this, Marriage is the operation by which a woman's vanity and a man's egotism are extracted without anesthetic. Wow. Here, honey. 
Read this. Happy Valentine's Day. I mean, listen, I am not too motivated to accept hardships when my goal is happiness. Right? Because then you're going to see your spouse as blocking your goal or whatever, or, or a relationship in the church or whatever. Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, said, so we make it our goal to please him. So we're given the responsibility of in all of our relationships, home, church, job, all of it, we filter that through our allegiance and our relationship with God. And, and it's to help us, draw us to him. But if you shut that off, if you do not seek God, I guarantee you, you've got idols. Because something else is going to fill up the heart. Or you can at least try to, even though it can't do the job. And that's why you're often so miserable. Or that's why you don't like being by yourself too much, because you don't like thinking about those things. So you fill your schedule up with just stuff. I'm convinced that one of the marks of a, of a healthy Christian is solitude. Being able to, to spend time by yourself and be okay with your self-talk. Because you're okay with God. Many Christians can't do that. Got to constantly have their phone, iPad, computer, Facebook, something to fill up the time because I'm just too uncomfortable with myself. That's a sign that something is not right under the hood. I don't want you to get me wrong. I love being married. I love being married to my wife. I like the, the fun parts, but I'm also learning to appreciate the difficult parts as well. And there are frustrations that help me see things, help me see myself, help me to, to love Janet more deeply. But there are also difficult parts that crucify the aspects of me that I really can't stand. There are parts that force me to my knees to find my strength in God. And the same is true for the church. I mean, I, I, I love being a pastor, and I love this church. But I'm learning to also appreciate hardships that God is still working in the midst of those. Even though I may not see it, I may not know the specific reason for it, but I don't have to constantly kick against it either and know that God is still sovereign, that he's got this, that he loves me, even though all this is going on. It's not, a hardship is not something to avoid, but something to appreciate, that, that God is still working. So when we make happiness an idol, we're, we're going to avoid conflict, confrontation, and most of the time we're going to try to escape. And one surefire way to see whether your heart is susceptible to idols is blaming. By the way, these things I know by experience, <laughs> right? I've also read them in books, but by experience, I understand that these things are true, all right? Blaming. I mean, we spend time blaming other people for our issues because we're far too infatuated with ourselves and we are blinded to our own faults. 
And you know what blaming also does? It can be a pathway to cruelty. Like when a, a man, I'll just say a man in this case, it could be a wife too, but just for sake of simplicity, a man blames his wife, you know, for not giving him respect, and then every, every perceived hurt is exaggerated, and it gets to a breaking point. And I've heard of spouses saying this to one another, the truth is, I've never loved you. And then maybe to add, I should have never married you. Now, that's meant to be an attack on the spouse. You know, like, I don't find you lovable. But put in the Christian context, in light of the the grace of God that has been poured on us, it's a confession of that man's utter failure as a Christian. Because if he hasn't loved his wife, it's not his wife's fault. It's his I mean, Jesus tells us to even love our enemies, right? So a man who says, I've never loved you, is a man who's essentially saying, I have never acted like a Christian. Good luck with that. And then when are we ever justified in abdicating our responsibilities because of what somebody else does? Never. I mean, those are the thoughts of an adolescent, not an adult, at least from a spiritual perspective. So marriage can be used to expose these things in our life. And I mean, you know how many times I have argued with my wife and with God in my journal? (laughs) Because I am wrestling And it could be with somebody else as well. I'm wrestling, trying to work this out. And it's like, okay, God, man, you know, I I feel this tension. And, you know, what's going on in me? And what's happening? And and then by the end, maybe an hour later, it's like, oh, man, I am so arrogant. You don't need marriage, by the way, to learn how to blame. And we blame all kinds of people in our lives for perceived or real slights. And then the hurts get exaggerated. And those hurts are there for a variety of reasons. A common reason that people opt to, opt to blame is because they're not facing the hurt in their own hearts. And usually that can be like some kind of wound from childhood, like a father wound or something, where a, a father maybe was absent or a father never gave approval or maybe even a father at worst was even abusive. And it, it leaves a huge gaping hole. There's a great book about this called The Blessing by Gary Smalley. I'd highly recommend it if if you struggle with that. And I think he gives a a great pathway for how one can deal with that. But I believe that God can even heal those hurts. We're not left just floundering without any help at all. We've got to go through a process of, 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 of confession and honesty with ourselves, recognize our propensity to blame others instead of looking at our own heart. We can't change the hurts that have been done to us. We can only change how we respond to them, right? We we can't erase the pain that has occurred in our lives. But we can believe that there is a sovereign God who is working even when I don't understand, and I, I can't see the specifics, but I believe that he's in control, 
and I, and I know that he loves me. Abraham Lincoln was known for having a, a difficult relationship with his wife, Mary. And this was a day when it was a lot different than today. You could go into the White House and visit the president. If you've ever seen the movie Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis, you see that you know, there were just commoners going and visiting with the president. You could do that then. But there was a salesman who called on the White House, and he was treated to a verbal assault from Mary, President Lincoln's wife, and as you know, it was a very difficult marriage. I mean, if she were living now, she could probably get a lot of help. She probably had something physical or chemical going on with her, probably could have gotten help. We don't know exactly what was wrong with her, but there was something wrong with her. Well, anyway, this the salesman visited with Mary. She basically assaulted him. So he goes up to the Oval Office, and he complains to President Lincoln. Lincoln listened calmly, then stood and gently said, you can endure for 15 minutes what I've had to endure for 15 years. Whoa. Here's the point, though. Lincoln's character was tested in the marriage. It was almost like a boot camp, a training ground for what God had for him outside the marriage. He became possibly the greatest leader our country has ever known. And I think his marriage had a lot to do with it. And him knowing how to handle opposition with great sensitivity. Married to a very difficult first lady. And God used that to mold him. We can make the choice to see the difficult relationships as a, as a way for God to mature us, to help us learn faithfulness in and perseverance. When we find our security and needs ultimately met in Christ, we can better give and receive love. It's like God frees us up. We're not, we're not burdened by the idols, by the negative self-talk. 1 John 4.19 says what? We love him because why? He first loved us. I mean, I can much better receive Janet's love with, with gladness, and I can love to a greater degree of depth and honesty when I abide in Christ. It wasn't always that way for me, especially in our early part of our marriage. Some of you may have heard me tell this story. If you have, then just oblige me for now and shake your head and smile like you heard it for the first time, okay? The, the first big date for Janet and I was at a restaurant that Stan Musial owned called Stan Musial and Biggie's. Any, any of you been in St. Louis remember that restaurant? It's not there anymore. But uh, that was our first big date. Very expensive, by the way. This was from a youth pastor making under 10 grand a year. It cost me like a month's worth of salary to pay for the dinner, okay? It was on I-40 just down the road from, from Forest Park. And I, of course, was wanting to impress her. So I picked her up in my hot ride, which was a Pontiac 
Aster, which was like the Vega. Remember that car? Truly the crappiest car ever made in America, okay? It was orange, orange with the car, the, the, the wood siding on the side, you know, that they had, okay? A little station wagon, four-cylinder aluminum block engine. Guys will know, okay, you're really raising the bar there. And then it often wouldn't start, so I would have to jump the celluloid with a screwdriver. So, pick her up. And by the way, I had a rust velour suit on. I was styling. So I, I pick her up. We pull up to Stan Musial and Biggie's restaurant. She gets out and is standing on the steps. And it was like a vision from heaven in that chiffon dress. It's like, oh, my land. Her. And then, you know, me. <laughs> and the car. The valet guy comes to get the car, and guess what? The car won't start. <laughs> Behind us, you know, Mercedes, BMW, Aster, orange. So we have to pop the hood as the valet guy's trying to start it, and I'm jumping the celluloid with a screwdriver, okay? Finally get it going, then he can't roll up the window. I say, well, crank it, and I'm pushing on the window to get it up on the driver's side, Impressive. I did not have the cool car. I did not have the clothes. But I can look back on that incident now and realize how I was comparing myself and then what God has done now in both of our hearts so that we can give, and you know what? Receive love freely. Because many of us are not good at receiving love because we don't believe it. We think we're not lovable. We don't deserve love. But now we're enjoying the best years. You know, I think of some families in our church body that have adopted children, and to me, that's, that's just a beautiful picture of God's grace. You know, I think of one family that adopted, now adopted a Down syndrome baby. Who does that? Who does that? From China. Or another family a quadriplegic who has all kinds of, of health issues adopted the baby. Young couple, no children. This is their first child. I, I told Janet, I go, I don't know that I could do that. And it's as if God is, was tapping me on the shoulder and saying, hey, you're not the parent in that narrative. You're the special needs child. And I am pouring out my love on you. And it's like, oh, okay. Now I get it. See, when you understand God's grace, and all of us are undeserving, and that fills you up, I can love so much more freely, so much more openly, and, and receive love as well. That's all I want for us, so that our relationships can be healthy. Marriage, church, everywhere else. 